0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Um, just coming back from a big wedding. My sister got married yesterday up in Big Canoe Resort in Jasper, so that was a beautiful thing. And I want to thank you. I know many of you were praying for us and, uh, and all of that, so I want to thank you and just tell you it was, it was a wonderful time. The Lord really met us there, and uh, just, it just was wonderful to see. And even have some family visiting this morning, worshiping with us, and that's, that's really sweet. So I'm, I'm glad to be with you this morning. We're going to be in the book of Malachi again this morning. We're continuing our sermon series. And we're going to be in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 2? We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And uh, before we look at the text, just by way of introduction, um, you'll note that this text focuses uh, specifically on the priests. Uh, And remember, we saw this last time, too, a little bit. The problem in Israel wasn't just merely careless worship among the congregation, but also careless worship among the leaders of the congregation, the people who were supposed to be helping the congregation know God and and love Him and worship Him in purity and peace. And they were really failing in that task. Um, They didn't really give the honor. Uh, due to God's name, and the people were stumbling as a result. And so God sends this warning in our text this morning specifically to the priests, and he, you see it right in verse 1, "'And now, O priests, this command is for you.'" But you might be thinking, well, just how is a message to Old Testament priests really relevant to me and what I got going on in, in my life? Well, really, I can think of at least three ways that it's relevant to us, and, and the first would be that priests in the Old Testament not only offered sacrifices to, to God on behalf of the people, but they also taught God or taught the people from God's Word. That was probably even their main job, what they did most often. Uh, and, and pastors and elders, we know, have a similar job today. Of course, we have a great high priest in Jesus, and He offered up a perfect sacrifice once for all on our behalf. And we don't need to offer any more sacrifices in that way anymore, and we don't need someone to intercede, uh, a human to intercede for us on behalf of um, us and, and God. But, but we do still need people, and God still gives His church, people to help us know God and uh, to obey His Word and know how to live it out and apply it to our lives. And, uh, and so, because the priest had a similar job that, that pastors and elders do today— we need to know what faithfulness in that calling looks like so that we can be praying for our pastors and elders, so that we can be encouraging them in their work. And another reason why it's relevant to us is because we are priests. Did you know that? We're called priests. We're called priests in First Peter. When God calls us His people, He says, you are priests, in the same way that the Old Testament people were called priests. In Exodus 19, they were called out of Egypt to be a kingdom of priests to the world, that they would image forth what it meant to look uh, like as, as God's people, uh, as redeemed people, as people who had been brought out of slavery and now could enjoy all the benefits of fellowship with God. They were to be priests to the world, and we are to be priests to the world. So we need to know what faithfulness in that calling looks like, and we need to know what are the, the means by which God gives us to be able to be faithful to that, and, and to know how to ask the Spirit for the power and the help that we need. to to live it out. Because in ourselves, we know day to day, we don't feel like priests, do we? We feel like well, most everybody else feels like, and sometimes it's hard to remember all the good promises of the gospel. So we need to know what faithfulness in this calling looks like and how we can ask the, the Spirit for help to be faithful in it. And the final reason, maybe even the most important reason this text is relevant to us is because Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one who perfectly fulfills all of the priestly responsibilities and never fails. If we're to hear what Malachi says to us and, and really not be overcome with, with guilt, we have to know that Jesus' priestly faithfulness covers us. We've, we've often failed in our priestly task. Your, your pastor and elders sometimes frequently fail in their, their priestly task, but Jesus never fails in his priestly task. So we ought to know what faithfulness to the priestly calling looks like so that we can love Jesus better and grow in our thankfulness for all that he does for us. Now, remember that one of the great themes um, of Malachi, something we've been trying to massage into the language that we often use at Christ Community Church, is the uh, connection between the indicative and the imperative. And just to kind of rehearse some of that language, um, the indicative reminds us of who we are in Christ. It's the foundation of of God's blessing over us as His people and His assurance that we are His and and loved by Him. And, And think about how Malachi just shouts this from the rooftops from verse 2, I have loved you. That that's the way the prophet begins this message to Israel. That, that's the indicative, I have loved you. That, it indicates, we might even say, who you are. And, but that's connected also to the imperative. The imperative is, well, what do you do with that? What does it look like to, to live that out, that truth out day to day in, in faithfulness to the Lord, and in, in really in transformed lives of, of obedience? And we see that we can't separate the two. If everything rests on the imperative, just the command, obey, uh, then we're just out without hope because we know that within ourselves, we don't have the resources to obey. We don't have the changed hearts in our natural state that really love the things that God commands us to do and really delight in Him. Uh, and so we need the indicative. We need the assurance that God is the one who draws us into His fellowship and transforms our hearts and causes us to love Him deeply and from the heart. So, if everything rests on the imperative, we have no hope. But if everything rests on the indicative, or um, yeah, on the indicative, and it just it ends there, then we really have no way. to to live out our renewed lives and our renewed hearts. It would just be sort of this abstract, ethereal statement that just got pretty much meaningless. So God gives us means to to live out the indicative in transformed lives and really experience the fellowship that he meant to give us, the, the transformed lives of obedience that allow us to abide in Jesus and know deeply that he loves us and experience all that he is for us in Jesus. And so we're invited, we're invited to obey because we've already experienced the love of Jesus in the indicative, in the proclamation, I have loved you. So, for the great concerns of Christian religion, namely, how we grow in our knowledge of God's love and promises, that's, that's the indicative that we need to know, and how we live out that knowledge in witness and love to our neighbors, that's the imperative that we, what we need to obey, and, and how we abide in Jesus' priestly work for us, you might even say that's the, imper- the indicative again, this text has something to teach us. And, and really, mainly, what we see is that faithful priests stand in awe of God's name. It's pretty simple, but I think that's the key truth of, the, of this text. Faithful priests stand in awe of God's name. Well, let's see it from the text itself. Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. This is what it says. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts." But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Well, you see, that, that's a very serious word from the Lord. And it invites us, I think, to ask ourselves this question. What moves us to feel awe and wonder? And I don't mean that in just the sort of maybe Christianese way. Like, you know, you, you, you hear a question like that, and you immediately think, well, the, the obvious answer is Jesus. And th- that is the obvious answer. That's a, that's a really good answer. But I'm even thinking of, well, like the wedding yesterday when it was outside and re- before the mountains of North Georgia and just looking out and just thinking, wow, God, God made that, and that's beautiful. That was a moment of awe and wonder. And I'm thinking of moments like that. The, what the, the awe and wonder that the priest had failed to give to God wasn't really too much divorced from the the awe and wonder that we feel at wonderful vistas of mountain views and and things like that. They they just had sought the awe and wonder that they were meant to find in God in trivial things, namely partiality in their instruction, trying to get um, the best benefits from saying the right things to certain people so they always heard what they wanted to hear. So we ought to ask ourselves, what moves us to feel awe and wonder, and what do we get most excited about? You see, the priests in Malachi's day were, were careless, really, about the one thing that they ought to have been most careful about, the honor of God's name. They had shown partiality in their instruction. They tried to, keep, tried to get and to keep certain privileges based on telling the people, or at least certain people, maybe the most privileged people in society, only what they wanted to hear. And what the priest had done, according to our text, really should be shocking to us. But. I think maybe sometimes we have a hard time getting our heads around what made it so terrible. We can see how terrible God's estimation of it is, is by the way, He so thoroughly rebukes them. He, notice what He says in verses 2 and 4 God will curse them if they do not listen. He will take the dung of their offerings and spread it on their faces. That's probably a reference to the, the animal entrails uh, that they would have removed before offering it up on the altar as a sacrifice. And remember, in the, the Levitical codes in the Old Testament, they were meant to take that outside the camp and burn it. it It was was unclean. And God's going to take the uncleanness, so to speak, of their offerings and spread it on their own faces. So what God is saying here is that He will thoroughly rebuke them and show them that what they've been doing is not acceptable at all. And even so, we may still wonder why the Lord's rebuke is so strong. But let's go back in our memories, as the text invites us to do, to the covenant of Levi. God said, he would curse the, the priests and remove or spread the dung of their offerings on their faces so that his covenant with Levi might stand. So what made this covenant so important? Well, a few reasons. The Levites, remember, were singled out as the tribe that would serve the Lord as his priests and priestly assistants. And just think of that. It was a special thing to be singled out as the people who had, got, who had God himself as their inheritance. The things of God, his, his ways and his character, were to be the special study of this people, the very maker of heaven and earth, and our creator was to be the one that they knew best. This was a blessing and an inheritance beyond imagining, and it was meant to be theirs so that they might help others know and enjoy God. And it was also a covenant of life and peace It was a covenant that enabled them to rest secure in God's provision for them. Just think of that. Would God be apathetic about His people knowing about His name? Would He give the the priests a, a job and then not supply them with all the resources they needed to be able to glorify God and help all the people to know Him and worship Him in purity and peace? Of course not. And so if He had given them such a high calling, could they not rest secure in His provision for them? And even further, God had given them the very job that made for the highest joys that can be known, namely, knowing God. And the priest had this as their special job, their their calling. And another reason the covenant of Levi was so important is that it was a covenant of fear, or maybe as we would say, a covenant of awe. The most amazing fact in the universe, out of all the the billions and billions of facts that are out there, is the fact that God is. He's not a creation of our minds. He's not the projection of our egos. His counsel always stands. His will can never be thwarted. His justice overlooks nothing, and his mercy extends to the lowest sinner. He is the king and commands everyone to bow before him. He sets up kings and removes kings, and no one can stay his hand or question him, saying to him, what have you done? to know god to know god as he really is is to fear him to stand in awe before who he is it's to recognize that the god with whom we have to do is is awesome and in the true sense of that word you know, climbers of Mount Everest or, or K2 or other, you know, extreme heights sometimes say you have to have a healthy fear of the mountains because they can so easily kill you. If you get trivial when you're climbing the mountain and you, you know, you forget your ice pack or your oxygen or something like that, that that's really dangerous. Um, and sometimes we speak of the awesome power of government. If you get trivial about the law and try to work your own will in, in terms of the law, it will end poorly for you, most likely. Um, or sometimes we speak of the, the, the awesome power of big industrial machines like the, the, the big dump trucks that I was l- looking at on YouTube the other week that can carry 400 tons of, of rock and dirt out of big mines. Um, if you get trivial around such equipment, it will probably, in- you'll get injured or worse. Or sometimes we speak of awesome responsibilities like, like being a parent. You, you deeply feel that here's a responsibility um, that is awesome and brings with it obligations that, that cause you have to think through things, maybe in a way that you hadn't thought through things before. Um, of course, it's a wonderful thing, but it also comes with a certain uh, a sense of awe, a sense that this is weighty with significance. And of course, we could multiply examples of this kind. Life abounds with good things that we love and that are good for us, but that also we dare not treat trivially. And we recognize there's a healthy kind of fear, a healthy kind of awe about things that are weighty with significance and power. And if this is true about things in God's creation, how much more so about God himself? The one who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power, the one who parts seas sea so that his people can cross on dry land, the one who provides water from, in the desert from an ordinary rock, the one who brings his people into a good and prosperous land and defeats all of their enemies the one who overlooks their sin, who uh, covers it in Jesus' righteousness and provides his own son as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice on their behalf, the one who is making all things new, the one who gives you an inheritance that even the angels long to look into. What kind of awesome power are we dealing with here? What kind of significance has he given to us? That's awe-inducing. And this is what the priests were given to proclaim to the people. They stood in a covenant of fear, aware of the significance and power of God, and they stood in awe of his name. So these reasons help us to see how terrible what really was for the priests spoken about in our text to treat God so contemptuously by their self-serving partiality in their teaching. They took the greatest things in life and the greatest privilege that could be imagined and threw it away in exchange for the supposedly easy, comfortable privileges of this world. So God's rebuke, is is fitting. Hear what Walter Kaiser says. I I was helped by the way that he put it about the the priest's failure to honor God's name. He said, the priests had engaged in such moral corruption that they had lost all respect in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of God. They had courted popularity by giving the people what they wanted and by modifying God's requirements so that regard for persons and partiality in justice, not God's word, were the norms. The priests were now reaping what they had sown. The poetic justice of God using the remains of sacrifices performed with such hypocrisy can be captured in our more felicitous idiom, the priests were left with eggs on their faces. So the priests of Malachi were unfaithful because they did not stand in awe of God's name. The terrible consequence was that they had caused many to stumble along with them. That is, they had turned aside from God's way and others had followed them in the way of the world. When God is not attractive, any other path will seem better. The priest, given the responsibility and the gift of teaching the people about such a God and His ways, stood in possession of a sacred gift almost beyond imagining, that they should have the charge of communicating about God to a people who were His own special possession in the world uh, and who were given an identity far beyond the animal nature that the pagans of their and sometimes even our day um, think that is the sum of mankind. Uh, was a duty with the deepest significance. For we know how easy it is for us to fall into um, error and and rebellion and how high we sometimes may be lifted by God's blessing over us and the reminder of, of who we are in Him. We know how confused and deceived we sometimes can be. And we also know the rest and joy that comes from a mind illuminated by the Spirit. So how majestic is our God, and what glory He bestows on our people, and how horrid is sin, which confuses and blurs that. But we see also that God's rebuke is not the final word. It is given so that His covenant with Levi may stand. The failure of the priests will not be the end of the matter. God always keeps His word. So He tells us what a faithful priest looks like and does. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, What hope is there for priests who have failed so miserably? What hope is there for us, knowing how lightly we've often treated the things of God? Well, the hope is in our faithful priest, Jesus. What makes Jesus such a good and perfect priest? I can think of lots of reasons. These are 10 that I just came up with on the top of my head. His sacrifice was pleasing and perfect to God. It was offered once for all. He he always honored His Father's name. Think about the way he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glorified, set apart, seen with awe and wondered, loved, cherished, delighted in, hallowed be your name. His life was completely surrendered to his Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before the, the most horrific sin that could possibly be imagined was being contemplated, and Jesus knew what he was about to go into, and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from my hand. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Such complete resignation to the Father's will. He was completely surrendered to his Father's will. Even his food, he once said, was to do the work his Father had given him to do. His very food was to do the work his father had given him to do. So committed was he to the work his father had given him to do, and so life-giving and nourishing did he find it, so completely trusting in God's wisdom for him and for the world that his food was to do the Father's will. He never flinched from speaking the truth. He often spoke truth to power, but he also spoke truth to people who were not in power, and it was a dangerous thing to do that too. He never flinched from speaking the truth. He was a messenger of the Lord of Hosts. He was a completely faithful messenger of the Lord of Hosts. He never showed partiality in his teaching. He told the most powerful some of the things that they did not want to hear. And he told the weak and the lowly things that they needed to hear that were life-giving and hopeful, but that no one else would tell them. He guarded the truth with his words. Sometimes he did not answer questions directly because he recognized the questioner had things confused or was coming at it from a different angle than the truth demanded. So he guarded the truth with his words. He turned many aside from the way of destruction, and he saved his people from sin and death. And we could go on and on and on. Jesus is a faithful high priest. He's the perfect priest. Jesus perfectly walks with his Father in peace and uprightness. Jesus perfectly performs every priestly duty that, the, that these priests had failed to do and that we often fail to do. So will we look to Jesus when we are overwhelmed by our failures? There's no better place to look. There's no other priest who does what Jesus does for his people. So again, I ask you this question. What are some ways Jesus has shown himself to be a faithful priest for you? How how has he been faithful to you despite your failures to stand in awe of his name? As we said at the beginning, these are things we need to hold together, because if we just hear the condemnation of the priests and we take that upon ourselves and we recognize all of our failures, maybe even this morning, to stand in awe of God's name, uh, we would be overwhelmed and we'd be undone. So it's good to be reminded and to think seriously, how has God been faithful to me despite my failures? How is He inviting me in these things to experience the joy of being a participant in the work of priestly faithfulness that He is doing? How has Jesus been faithful to you, despite your failures, to stand in awe of his name? So many of us feel overwhelmed about obedience because we don't pay very close attention sometimes to what the Bible says about it. We, we think of it almost entirely as, as doing stuff, and when we fail to do stuff, we get discouraged. But these priests have failed not first because they failed to do stuff. They've still offered sacrifices on the altar. They've been hypocritical sacrifices, but they've, they've done the outward duties, so to speak, Their first failure was a failure of worship. We saw this last week, too. They'd failed to be awed at God's name. You you can't walk in the way uh, towards something you don't value, not seriously, anyway, not in this world with so many other competing claims for your heart. So the solution for us is to become awake and alive to God, and when we do this, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are many practical lessons for us in this text. We, we need to know what faithful priests do, do so that they, we can be praying for the men God has given our church to help us to know him and to live out our calling in this world. We need to know what a faithful priest does so we can be faithful priests ourselves to our neighbors and family and friends. And we need to know what a faithful priest does so that we'll be motivated to be good Bereans and know the Word of God ourselves so well that we can spot when... Um, the truth of what we are hearing or what we are hearing doesn't line up with the truth of God's word. But most of all, most of all, we need to know what a faithful priest does so that we will trust our faithful priest, Jesus, and run to him with our failures and believe him when he tells us that he will make us more like him. The solution to our frequent failures to stand in awe of God's name is to believe in Jesus and grow in our delight and awe of God by seeing how much he loves us in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as Paul told the Corinthians, the more we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, the more we are transformed by degrees and degrees into his likeness. And of course, that's a a lifelong journey. We're all there in, in some different stages. But the the, the solution for our failure is to stand in awe of God's name, to treasure and value the things He's given us, to, to just be overwhelmed in the way that we're sometimes overwhelmed by a grand mountain view or exciting things that happen in our lives. To be overwhelmed by God's love for us is to see how much He loves us in the face of Jesus. There's no better place to look because He is a faithful priest for us. So, what does Malachi 2, 1 through 9 teach us? At least two things. Faithful priests stand in awe of God's name. Faithful priests stand in awe of God's name. And in Christ, we have a great high priest who perfectly keeps God's ways. We'll close. I I was helped this week by this uh, prayer that John Calvin offered up in his commentary on Malachi Malachi, uh, as as he contemplated uh, this duty of priesthood and, and the way in which he prayed for God's help to do it well. He said this, Grant, almighty God, that as you have been pleased to choose us at this day your priests, and have consecrated us to yourself by the blood of your only begotten Son and through the grace of your Spirit, O grant that we may rightly and sincerely perform our duties to you and be so devoted to you that your name may really be glorified in us. And may we be thus more and more confirmed in the hope of those promises by which you not only guide us through the course of this earthly life, but also invite us to your celestial inheritance. And may Christ your Son so rule in us that we may ever cleave to our head and be gathered as his people into a participation of that eternal glory into which he has gone before us. Amen. And let's follow that up with our own prayer as we close out our sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that you are a faithful priest for us. Lord, help us to be awed at your name, to recognize how good you are to us, to see that in the gospel, that um, this text would motivate us to... Uh, not just relegate the gospel to things that we've heard before and have grown familiar with and perhaps have even grown bored with, but that it would really and and truly put our hearts into a flame to love you more deeply and to see how much you love us, not to be overwhelmed by our failures, but to face them head on and to recognize they're not the final word, that you are transforming us into the image of Jesus because you love us. Thank you for this, Lord. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.